0: Man, it's good to uh, just be together to open up God's word. I love hearing you sing. I love just that last part of uh, the song we just sang, just hearing our voices lifted up to the Lord together, just giving praise and worship for God's great grace given to us in and through Christ. And as Will said earlier, if you're new here, I mean, I hope you're encouraged already in your time here this morning. Uh, If you're just kind of checking out church maybe for the first time or you're trying to find a church because you're new to the area, I I hope that you will consider just hanging out with us for a few weeks and just kind of getting to know this community. We love to get to know you as well. We're going to be in the, in the book of 1 Timothy this morning as we continue in our series, Faithful Church. And so if you need a copy of the Bible this morning, would you just raise your hand? We'll have a few folks give a, or walk around to pass out Bibles to you. So just keep your hand up till they find you if you need one this morning. I want you to be able to read along with us. Uh, and if you don't actually own a copy of the Scriptures, uh, please feel free to take that home. That's our gift to you. Uh, we believe God's Word is critical for our lives. And so we want you to have access to that and be able to have a copy of the scriptures. Uh, as we begin our time before we open up to the scriptures, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I'm grateful to be able to to stand here today. Uh, to open up your Word, not because I have something special, not because I am something special, Lord. Today, I stand before this group of people, my brothers and sisters, guests this morning. I stand before you, clothed not in my righteousness, but in Christ's righteousness. And so, Lord, I pray that what would be evident this morning, what would be clear this morning as we talk about a, a, a topic, a subject area that your scripture talks a whole lot about, but oftentimes we ignore. Lord, would you soften our hearts today? Would you help us to open up our minds and our hearts to what your word would have to say to us this morning? And this would be your words, that your spirit would use this time to bring transformation in our lives and in this church for your glory and for our good. So Lord, we come before you only by the grace of Christ that we receive through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And we just want to submit our lives to you today, and we pray this in his name. Amen. You guys heard of John D. Rockefeller, right? John D. Rockefeller was the, the, the big oil tycoon of the early 20th century, and it is said that he still, to this day, holds the spot as the richest American that ever has lived. At the time of his death, his estimated net worth, which has been adjusted for inflation over the years, was said to be somewhere around $375 billion. I didn't say million, I said billion dollars. $375 billion. I mean, that's silly money. Like, we can't even wrap our minds around how much money that is. Just to give you a comparison Bill Gates, who is at the top often of the richest person in the world right now or in America, is worth $79 billion. So $300 billion more dollars is how much Rockefeller was worth. And someone once asked him, hey, you've got a lot of money. How much money is enough money? How much is enough for you? And he responded in this way. He said, one more dollar than I have. One more dollar than I have is how much is enough money, meaning there's never enough. I always need to get more. Now Rockefeller was known for his philanthropy. He was a philanthropic man, but I think the sentiment of what he expressed in answering that question, one dollar more, one more dollar than I have, kind of hits the nail on the head of the deep heart issue that money is for so many of us. We can oftentimes always think, always believe that I have to have more, I need more, I want more, and just one more dollar is all that I need. I believe it's one of the greatest idols of our time. It's one of the greatest idols of the, the society we find ourselves in, particularly in America, particularly in Northern Virginia. And I believe it's one of the biggest idols that can, that can creep up even within the church, Many people, including us as followers of Christ, struggle with just the the just one more dollar or just a little bit more for me mentality when it comes to our money, when it comes to our things. But see, this problem isn't just for 2015. It wasn't just for the era of John D. Rockefeller. It's been a struggle and a temptation for ages for God's people. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to that. 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul addresses the temptation that money and wealth of any kind can be. He addresses the notion that God's goal for you, that God's plan for you, is to prosper you with the things of this world. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, Paul says this. He's addressing the fact that some people are using godliness or using spirituality in order to gain more things. And he says this, starting in verse 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Jesus taught something similar. In Luke chapter 18, we see Jesus interacting with a rich young man and he calls this rich young man to sell everything he has, everything he owns, and to give all the proceeds of all of that to the poor and to follow Jesus. And if you are familiar with the story, this man walks away with Jesus because it says he had many things. And Jesus' response as he's teaching the disciples, as he's teaching us right after that, he says how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, why would Jesus say this? Why would Jesus say that? Is the gospel not sufficient for people who have a lot? Is that what Jesus is saying here? There has to be something more? Now, the reason Jesus says that this is difficult for the people who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God is because the pursuit of riches for many of us can become our lasting hope instead of the gospel. We can think, man, if I have more, if I just have a little bit more, then I'll be fine. It can be so distracting. It can be so blinding to us, leading us to believe that we are okay or that we'll be okay when our accounts are large, our houses are big, and our closets are full. As Jesus says, we cannot serve both God and money. Now here's the deal though. For most of us, by all accounts, for most of us in this room, we are rich when it is compared to the rest of the world. Now, some of us more than others, and we may can argue over that, but pretty much everyone here, in regards to, in comparison to the rest of the 7.2 billion people in this world, we are materially rich. If you have disposable income, then you are rich compared to most of the rest of the world. If you can buy a cup of coffee at a coffee shop, if you can go out to eat, if you can go to a movie, if you have a Spotify subscription, if you can buy new shoes, For that matter, if you own more than one pair of shoes, if you own a computer, if you own a car, you get the point, you have more at your disposal than most people in the world today, which means that in material wealth, most of us, if not all of us, are rich. And so we live in a rich country, we find ourselves in a very affluent area in Fairfax County, which is one of the richest counties in all of the U.S. So what are we to do with this? What are we to do? Is, it, is this just a call to get rid of everything and live an ascetic life where we just kind of denounce everything of this world and just hang out and have nothing? Is that what we're supposed to do? What are we to do with this? Is having a lot of money bad? Well, today we're going to look at three other verses in First Timothy. That's where we're going to spend most of our time is in three other verses in First Timothy chapter 6 to answer that question and through this text to see that in order for us to be a faithful church, In order for us to be a faithful church, we must be marked by faithful generosity. In order for us to be a faithful church, we must be marked by faithful generosity. So may God bless the preaching of his word today for his glory in our good. We've been walking through this series over the last few weeks, talking about being a faithful church. And and what we've seen is Paul's writing the letters of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus to Timothy and Titus, leaders within the church, to call them to faithfulness, to say, hey man, the world is trying to pull you away from Jesus. So Timothy and Titus, as leaders in the church, I want to call you to be faithful leaders and call the churches you're leading to be faithful, to hold on to Jesus, regardless of what the world throws at you. So Paul, at the end of 1 Timothy 6, is wrapping up this letter. He's concluding his letter, calling the church to faithfulness. But look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. Verses 17 through 19, Paul says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so they may take hold of that which is truly life. In these three verses, we can see three things. Paul gives a countercultural charge, talks about a hopeful work, and a glorious reward. A countercultural charge, a hopeful work, and a glorious reward. In verse 17, we see the countercultural charge that Paul gives. He addresses the rich of this age, people who are materially wealthy. Now, Timothy is leading in the Ephesian church, and in the city of Ephesus, this church was made up of both people that had great wealth and those who didn't. But Paul here is addressing the issue of money once again with Timothy as as Timothy leads these Ephesian believers. Now, he says a lot of challenging things in this first verse, in verse 17. But first, notice what he doesn't say. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say that being wealthy in and of itself is wrong. And I think that's important for us to understand this morning. I think it's important for us because oftentimes we may either believe or think we've heard, no, money is the root of all evil. Money is the root of all evil. I've heard that before. But we have to remember what Paul said in verse 10. In First Timothy chapter 6, he says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. The love of money. See, money in and of itself, wealth in and of itself, is not inherently wrong. In and of itself, as it stands alone, it is amoral. But how you get it and what you do with it becomes the issue. Because how you get it and what you do with it is an issue of our heart. See, our heart is where the motivational structures of our life reside. It's why we do what we do. It's where we give our love to things. It's where we give our worship to things. All that flows out of our heart. It flows out of what we believe is the most valuable thing. The most precious things to us in life flows out of our heart. And every decision we make, our will is all rooted in our heart. And so here we're addressing an issue of our heart, the motivational structure of our life. It's, it's reflective of where our worship really is where our worship really is, how we get what we have and what we do with what we have. As we said earlier, as Jesus says to us, you cannot love and serve both God and money. They won't both allow you to have a split Lord of your life. It's one or the other. We cannot worship both. So in light of that, Paul gives his countercultural charge, and it comes in two parts. Now, we need to understand something here before we get into this. Is This is a command from Paul. Paul says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them. Give them a command. Call them to something. This is not a suggestion. Paul's not planning out. This isn't kind of family financial management or family financial planning. Like, well, here's some suggestions for you about what you could do with your riches, what you could do with your wealth. But you make the decision as a family. No, Paul's saying, I'm calling believers to this. This is God's word. So what does he say to the rich? And again, I think we have to set all of ourselves under that as if he's speaking to us. First, he says, don't be haughty or proud because of what you have. It can be a temptation for us to think that because we have a lot, that we are better than people who don't. And that's always subjective, right? There's always somebody that probably has more than you, and there's always someone that has less than you. And so you can place yourself in a place of pride, thinking because of what you have, you're better than someone who has less I mean, we see this all over our culture and society all the time. The rich are often the famous. The rich are often the famous. With wealth comes great privilege in our culture. But Paul's charge is not to become prideful because of what you have, because all that you have, all of it, is from God. Your ability to work, your ability to earn the money that you have is a gift of grace from God. The circumstances you find yourself in and where you live and how you live and what you have is all a gift from God. James chapter 1 verse 17, James writes there, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So this is important to understand when it comes to what Paul is calling us to in these three verses. But what we can learn now is that all we have been given should promote humility within us, not pride. Because we recognize that everything we have has been given to us as a gift from the God of all creation. So don't be haughty, Paul says. Don't be prideful. But then he also says, don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Set your hope on God. See, money and stuff are shaky things to build your life and your hope on. It it doesn't last. It ultimately doesn't satisfy. In Psalm 130, I mean, Psalm, uh, excuse me, Proverbs 23, Paul says this about, I'm Paul, the author of Proverbs says this about riches. This is good wisdom for us this morning. Proverbs 23, verses four and five, he says, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, when you set your eyes on it, when you set your gaze on it, when you set your mind on it, it's gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. We can visualize that, right? As we set our mind and our attention on the wealth and the things this world offers to us, it sprouts wings and literally flies away. It doesn't last. It doesn't satisfy. Now, this is not a call to be lazy, As God's people, we are called to work hard. You and I should be the hardest workers in our workplace. We should be the most diligent, the most productive people we possibly can be for God's glory. We are called to work hard, but we are not called to be workaholics. Thinking, man, if I put just a little bit more time in, I can get one more dollar and be one more bit secure. I can lay and build my own lasting foundation for life and find my hope there. Remember 1 Timothy 6, 7, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Or to put some imagery to it, there are no U-Hauls behind hearses. There are no U-Hauls behind hearses, right? You never drive around and see, man, somebody's bringing everything with them. You bring nothing with you when you pass from this life. Riches and things are fleeting. They don't make for good masters. They don't make for good objects of our worship. And what we need to realize is that our personal property, our things, can devour us as followers of Christ and can devour the church. Swallow us up, chew us, break us in half. If we don't place our wealth and our riches and our things in the proper category of gifts from God to be used for God and his glory, rather than seeing them as our things used for our, God, our, our own use and our glory. See, one of, if not the biggest and greatest problem within the church today, I think, is materialism. And I think the reason that it's one of the greatest problems is because we don't even recognize it as a problem. It's commonplace for us to buy into what the world calls us to, that we need to acquire more, strive after what we think we need in order to survive. And very quickly, we can start to think, me first, then maybe... I'll give a little of what's left over. We can become easily enamored with what one pastor calls the stuff of future garage sales. We we, we strive after those things. We put our effort into those things. We place our hope into those things. We work our tails off for those things that one day will be marked with a sticker, 50 cents. Two dollars. And it sounds silly to us now, but if we really assess our own life, that's the reality for us so often see, it's not the creation that deserves our worship. It's the creator that calls us to worship him, to give all things to him, to place our hope in him. See, riches and things are a shaky foundation to place our hope on, to build our hope in. But God is a firm foundation. All things come from him in whom there is no variation or change. He is eternal. He is unchanging. He is our good father who will take care of us. In him, we can have hope. In God, we can truly trust. See, our hope as God's people is not on what we have, but who we have, or better yet, who has us. See, our God richly provides us with everything we need, namely grace. He provides us with everything we need. He calls us into relationship with him through Christ, and everything he gives to us, he gives to us to enjoy. And so it's okay to enjoy the things of God, it's okay to enjoy the things that God has created. But it's not about living a life of luxury or pleasure. It's understanding that everything is a gift for him who called us, called everything into existence out of nothing. And he called his, good, his creation good. And his good creation is to be ruled and it's to be enjoyed by us. But it's to be enjoyed for his glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, Whatever we do, even in our eating and our drinking, we can do everything to the glory of God. We can do everything to the worship and praise of God who gives us all things. See, this is a countercultural charge because it's counter to the mantra of our world who encourages us to get more and keep more. Because when you do that, they promise you that you'll be more happy, you'll be more satisfied, you'll be more secure in life if you just have one more dollar, one more thing. The next, the new, the nicest, the biggest, the best is always something worth pursuing. It's always something worth spending your time and your energy and your resources and your strength to acquire at whatever cost, at whatever cost, whether that's relationally or your integrity or even your worship of God. And again, it comes back to your heart. It's a matter of where your hope lies, what will satisfy you, what will make you feel secure, what will give you peace. So let me ask you a question this morning. In this countercultural charge of Paul, where is your ultimate hope this morning? What would happen if everything in your life right now was taken away from you? What would happen if someone was looking into your life right now, observing your life, where would they say your greatest hope is? Is it what you have or who has you? What do you do with what's been given to you? This leads to our next verse and our second point. Paul gives a countercultural charge and now he calls us to a hopeful work. Look at verse 18 again. Talking about the rich, putting their hope in God. Then he says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Paul says, put your hope in God and then do these three things. Do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. See, I think these two things are very much connected to one another. Because when we live our life and use our money in things in this way, it's an opportunity for us to express that our trust is in God. As we place our hope in God and not our money, it allows us, it frees us up to, to show that our hope is in him as we give more of our money away for the sake of his name and his glory to make much of him. See, in God's economy, great riches in the life of a believer doesn't warrant great privilege, it warrants great responsibility. It doesn't put us in a position of pride, like verse 17 says, but a position of service. Because everything we have has been given to us by God. We are stewards. We are managers. It's not ours. It's all his. So the hopeful work of faithful generosity is something that this should mark this church. Because it's always marked God's people. In the early church, we see that faithful generosity was a normal occurrence. In Acts chapter 4, we we see the early church spreading the gospel, sharing the message of the hope of the gospel with with people all around. And they're getting persecuted. They're getting put in prison and and ridiculed for their faith in Jesus. And so we see in Acts chapter 4 that what they do is they gather together and they spend time praying. They pray that God would give them boldness. Boldness to continue to share the message of the gospel. And then right after that, Luke, the author of Acts, says this. He gives us some commentary on the early church church. Acts chapter four, verses 32 through 35. says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. They were unified together. And this is what it says. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had open hands, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. What we see here in the picture of the early church is they were generous with their money and generous with their things. And they did it all in light of the gospel. They did it all in light of what Christ had done for them. They recognized that they were called out of death and darkness into light and life through Jesus and him alone. He was their greatest treasure. And his global glory was of their greatest concern. Sojourn, if Christ is our greatest treasure, if he truly is our greatest treasure, then we will see that using what we've been given to make much of him is a joy and a privilege for us as his people. This is not a call to ascetic living but using all that we have to show that our hope is in God and to share that hope with others, both locally and globally. It is faithful generosity for us to care for one another and see the expansion of the kingdom of God and the gospel go out to the ends of the earth. See, at the end of the day, faithful, generous giving is an investment in eternal realities, We are called to use our money and our things in this age for the sake of the coming age, which leads to our last point. We have a countercultural call. We have a hopeful work. And then we see Paul remind us of our glorious reward. What is the result of faithful generosity for the advancement of the gospel locally and globally? Paul says, as we are generous and ready to share, verse 19, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. So they may take hold of that that which is truly life. Paul's not talking about a savings account here. He's not talking about putting money away for the future. He's talking about an eternal future. When we'll be with Christ and see him face to face. It's, It's where we place treasure in heaven. When we'll one day stand before the Savior King. And what Paul says here is very similar to something Jesus himself teaches us in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6 verses 19 through 21. Jesus says this to us this morning. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where, ne- where thieves do not break in and steal. Then he says this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the ultimate return on investment. See, as we deeply and generously sow to kingdom advancement, we reap enormous kingdom reward. As we sow deeply and personally and generously and radically to kingdom advancement, we we reap enormous kingdom reward. We grab a hold of that which is truly life. So let me ask you a question this morning. Does your current spending and your use of your money and your time and your things, does it indicate to a watching world that Jesus is King and that his kingdom is most important to you? Or that you are King and your kingdom is most important to you? Does people watch your life? Is it, does, does what you do with the things you have, does it indicate that Jesus is King and that his kingdom is most important to you? Or that you are King and your kingdom is most important to you? See, the world around us, around us tempts us to live as they do, but Christ has called us out of this world yet to remain in it. So how we live our lives, what we do with what we have, communicates where our greatest hope is and communicates what we truly love. God and others is what God has called us to our faithful and generous God is calling us to faithful generosity for the sake of his great name. And our generosity, church, is a response to God's generosity towards us in Christ. We can never disconnect it from that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says there, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who along with the Father and the Spirit created everything. Jesus, the very Son of God, sustains the world. He is is who the world exists through and for. He holds all things together. He owns all things. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He left those riches to come to us as one of us to rescue us. The Son of God who had everything, he humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant, by taking on the form of humanity, bearing that burden for us, he became poor for what purpose? So that you and I can become rich. Not material wealth. Jesus didn't die to make you fat and happy and rich. Jesus didn't come to rescue you to just give you financial gain. That is a false gospel. That's a false gospel. No, we are made rich because we were dead and now we're made alive in Christ. We are rich because once we were orphans, but now we're called sons and daughters. Welcome to the very table of God. We were not a people, but now we are a people. We were in bondage to sin and death, but now we are free in Christ. We were citizens of the kingdom of darkness and death, but now we are citizens of the kingdom of God forever. All because of what Christ has done. Only because of what Christ has done. Jesus' poverty is that he set aside his eternal glory to take on the sin of the world by dying an undeserving death for an undeserving people. God has lavished the riches of his grace on us this morning by what Christ has done for us. And it's that same grace that turns selfish people like you and me into joyful, generous givers. See, the grace of Christ changes us Because it removes the false notion that keeping more for us, building bigger barns for us, building our kingdom will bring lasting joy, lasting peace, lasting comfort and security. Our joy is found in Christ. Our peace is found in Christ. Our comfort is found in Christ. Our security is found in Christ. So Paul's point then is that since we are made rich by God's grace... Through Christ, the appropriate response of God's people is faithful generosity and radical giving. We've been ransomed. Our sin has been paid for in full. We have experienced redemption. That is amazing, amazing news. It's amazing, amazing grace. Before we go on, I just want to ask us a question this morning. Have you experienced this redemption? Is Jesus really the Lord of your life? Like, like, stop for a minute. Is he really the Lord of your life? I don't mean that you pray to prayer sometime and ask Jesus to save you. I mean, is Jesus king over every aspect of your life? Your bank account, what you do, what you think. Is he Lord of everything? Is he your greatest treasure? Do you really know him? Or do you just know about him? See, Jesus saves us from the American dream. And he does that by saving us from ourselves saving us from ourselves and our little kingdom building and showing us the gloriousness of his coming kingdom. So I want to encourage us this morning to turn to him in faith today, whether for the first time or the hundredth time, turning to Jesus in faith because Jesus wants to save you. He wants to rescue you. He wants to restore you. He wants to make you brand new for his glory in your good. See, Sojourn, we, we don't earn or gain eternal life by our giving or our generosity. Our giving and our generosity flows from a new life, from a new heart. and enables us more and more fully to realize the reality of our own life, that we are secure in Christ, that we have everything in Christ. We can take hold of that which is truly life when we open our hands and let go of the things of this world. Because one day we will stand face to face with our Savior in the fullness of his kingdom. As one pastor says, we are not forced by God to give away our resources. We are freed by God to give away our resources. When we know the freedom we have in Christ, we don't need to grasp and hold on to other things. We can let go and trust him. And the Lord allows us the privilege to participate in the global expansion of his kingdom through the local church. Man, what a joy, what a privilege you and I have to use everything God's given us to make much of him. So what does this look like for us as a church? What does this look like for us as God's people here in Fairfax at Sojourn Church? If we are going to be a faithful church, we must practice faithful and extraordinary generosity. And I want to call us to that. I want that to be the mark of this church. That we be known as a generous people. Not for our own glory, but for God's glory. I want us to open our hands and say, Lord, what would you have me do with what I have? So I want to call us to three things to do that. The first is to pray. Because our money is connected to the issues of the heart, prayer is of essential importance to us. It's it's through prayer that we can come before the Lord and we can ask him to search us. Psalm 139 verses 23 and 24 say this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. We can pray and ask the Lord to, to, to search our hearts, to know our hearts, so that we might submit our lives to him. Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7 says, each one must give as he's decided in his heart. And so as we come to the Lord in prayer, we can lay our heart before him and, and ask him to give us wisdom and direction to assess our hearts and our lives and bring everything before him and ask him to work in us and through us for his glory. To show us what we should do with what he's given to us. And I've realized in my own life how often I don't spend time in prayer when it comes to the money I have and the things I have. My family has a budget. My wife and I talk about that. I realize, man, we don't spend very much time just laying that before the Lord and praying and asking the Lord for direction, asking the Lord for wisdom. How often it is that I start with a calculator before I get on my knees. I Lord, 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 what would you want me to do with this? How might I use what you've given to me to be generous and to make much of your name? If we are going to practice faithful generosity as God's people, we have to also practice faithful prayer. So we need to pray. The second thing I want to call us to is to scheme. To scheme for the kingdom of God. Now what do I mean by that? I mean I want us to think creatively about how to maximize what God has given to us for the greatest good and the most glory. It's okay to think and work to make as much money as you possibly can if the goal with that is to give away as much as you possibly can for the advancement of the gospel. As one uh, pastor from the Reformation time period said, a man's opportunities to do good to others increase with the abundance of his riches. Now you may not make a lot or have a lot right now. You may be in a profession that you're never going to make a lot or have a lot. But that doesn't mean that God cannot use you greatly for the advancement of his kingdom with what you have. As you scheme for that, as you think creatively about how would God use and allow me to use what he's given to me to use. College students, this is maybe where you find yourself right now. Maybe right now you don't have a lot of disposable income and you're not, you maybe don't have a job right now. You don't really have any income. But Man, how would God have you scheme for the advancement of the kingdom of God with what you do have? to really stop and think about all that you've been blessed with, all that you have right now, where you find yourself to use that for the glory of God, the advancement of his kingdom and to serve others. And I'd love to see us as a family scheme together so that we can practice faithful generosity. I'd love for us to talk about our personal finances, to to share with one another how much money we make so that we can help one another figure out how much we should give away. And we can hold each other accountable to that. I mean, isn't it weird that we'll go and sit in a community group and talk about sin struggles and talk about other difficulties in our marriages and in our life, but we never talk about our finances. We never go and say, man, this is how much money I make. This is how much God's given me to steward right now. Will you help me figure out what I'm supposed to do with that? Would you help me figure that out? See, if our hope is in Christ, and if we long to see his name exalted among the nations, let's open up our lives more and more to one another so that we can help one another open up our hands and exemplify faithful generosity. See, oftentimes I think what happens is we're we're a little bit too close to our own spending habits. They're kind of too close to us. They're just normal everyday occurrences of our life and we're, we're a little too close to see where we can change and do things differently we're not here to live life alone. We live in community with one another. We have relationships with one another and so we can help one another to to, to cut back, to change, to shift, to alter in order to maximize our use of what God has given given to us. So maybe even this week, grab a few people in your community group and, and get your budgets out and get real with one another, not to shame anyone. This isn't about shaming anyone, but it's to encourage one another and to push one another, to scheme together. It's like when you go to the gym, for those of you that do. And I haven't been in a long time. I had a, new, I had a baby recently. That's my excuse, okay? You know when you go to the gym though, you're like lifting weights, and it's it's great to go by yourself and do that, but it's great when you have somebody there with you saying, Man, you can do this. Just a little bit more, press a little bit more. You can lift that bar, you can lift that weight. I believe that you can. Man, I love that. I love having other people around you to pump you up to do that. The same thing's true in this case. Having people around you saying, no, brother, I think you can do a little bit more. Sister, I think you can do a little bit more. Let me hold you accountable to that. Let me help you do that. Maybe you're thinking, man, I don't even have a budget. So let's get real practical and ask someone in your life right now, in this community, in this family, to help you to form a budget with the interest, with the expressed desire that you wanna form a budget so that you can use everything you've been given to the glory of God so that more and more disciples are made. Here's an even more practical thing. Consider reverse planning your budget. What I mean by that is you start off and say, man, what would God have me give away? Maybe start with 10%. So I'm gonna give 10% to my local church for the making of disciples and then after I set that aside, then I'm gonna plan the rest of my budget out. Then I'm gonna figure out what I would live off of beyond that. 10% may be too low for some of us, It may be too high for some of us, but lay that on the table and consider what God would have you do and use your community around you to scheme together. And this leads to the last thing I want to call us to as a church family. I want to call us to give, to give. I want to call us to give sacrificially. See, we're not called to give out of surplus, but to give sacrificially. When we start first with what God would have us give away, we start with that 10% number. That's, that's going to be sacrificial for most of us to set that on the table and say, God, this is yours. I'm giving this to the local church to see the gospel go forward in and through the church. Man, I want to call us to give sacrificially. I, as a pastor in this church, want to lead my family in this. I want to lead in this by example. I want our elders to lead in this by example. So come talk with us about us. Challenge us as we challenge you in that. Let's scheme together. Let's press one another on giving sacrificially. Let's give regularly. See, Paul's call to gospel generosity is to be a regular part of your life, not something that's abnormal, not something you do every once in a while, but it's so commonplace for you to be able to give in that way. Give informally. Look for opportunities in your community. Look for opportunities within the church and outside the walls of the church to to bless others and to care for other people. Maybe consider setting aside some of of the money that God's given to you every month just to do that, just to bless other people, just to care for other people. But I also want to call you to give formally. God has ordained that finances are necessary for ministry and mission in Northern Virginia. And I know for many of us, we've never learned about giving to the mission of God through the local church. But something we need to understand is that the local church is God's mission agency It's in the local church and through the local church that disciples are made and disciples are grown. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10 says it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is made known. It's through the church that missionaries are sent both locally and globally. It's through the church that disciples are made and taught all that Jesus commanded us. It's through the church that people are baptized in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. It's through the local church that the glory of God is imaged to a watching world. See, when we give collectively to the local church in a formal sense, what that allows us to do is to join together collectively as a family, to work together to making disciples and seeing the spread of the gospel. Our whole budget as a church is about making disciples. Our whole budget is about making disciples, the caring for, the building up, the sending out of the body of Christ that more and more people might grow to know and follow Jesus. We are in a strategic place in Northern Virginia. We're in Fairfax, which is right in the middle of Fairfax County and really right in the middle of Northern Virginia. And from here, our hope, our desire, our call is to see disciples made, to see churches planted all over this region, to see missionaries sent to the ends of the earth from this church. So I long to see this church be a mission nerve center where resources are pouring in for us in the midst of the wartime we find ourselves in and then resources are pouring out from this church to go out and see more and more people here and around the world to come to know the gospel, to live out the implications of the gospel and then for them to share the message of the gospel. For us to multiply over and over and over again and that's what I want to be a part of. I want to see us say, man, what can we do to see God's glory go out to the ends of the earth, to go all over this county? Man, next year, I'd love to see a full-time missionary be sent out from Sojourn to George Mason's campus, to the small city within our city, where there's 35,000 students, some from all over the world, some from unreached people groups and closed countries. We had a full-time missionary on campus just to share the gospel with people and disciple students. Next year, I'd love to see us give thousands upon thousands of dollars away to support church planting, both locally and globally, because we believe that the local church is where the means of the gospel goes out and disciples are made. Right now, our church supports financially four churches within the U.S. We support one church planter internationally in Japan, and we're going to support church plants out of our own church, maybe two within the next couple of years man, what would it look like for us to have so many resources we could just say, yes, here, take this, go. Plant churches, see the gospel flourish. Next year, I'd love to see us send more and more money, more than we already do to organizations like the International Mission Board so that missionaries can be sent out so they don't have to go raise any money but can get equipped to go out on the field to go to men and women and unreached people groups that they might hear the name of Jesus and be forgiven and set free from their sin. And next year, I'd love to see us serve the needs of our community as a local church through radical acts of mercy. And brothers and sisters, your faithful generosity enables us to do that. As one pastor said, we can scarcely realize what the church could accomplish in the world if we gave our money away for Jesus with the same liberality that Jesus gave his life for us. And so if you call Sojourn your church, whether you're a covenant member here or you are a regular attender here, I want to call you this morning. I want to call myself this morning to faithfully and generously and radically give to the mission of God in and through this local church. As we understand Paul's countercultural charge about our money, the hopeful work at hand, the glorious reward to come, let's pray and scheme and give for God's glory and the good of others. Last week, we were reminded this is wartime, not peacetime. It's a time to sacrifice, not indulge. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus is that Jesus does save us from the American dream and all its empty promises and shows us the lasting hope that we have through the lavish grace of God given to us by the Father, through Christ. One day, we'll stand before God. On that last day, we'll stand before God, and what will we say with what we've done with all that we've been given. Man, God, I couldn't really give much to the mission of making disciples through my local church, but look at all the shoes I have. Man, God, I, God, I, I couldn't really give much to the mission of making disciples through my local church, but I sure got to enjoy a lot of lattes. and God, I, I couldn't really give much to the mission of making disciples through my local church, but I went on some really cool vacations to be a faithful church committed to local and global disciple making, we must practice faithful generosity. So brothers and sisters, let's be willing to examine our hearts, examine our lives, and ask God for his help to open our hands and to let go of that which we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose. Amen. Today, as we come to the table, we're going to eat the bread and drink the cup, and it's a meal we participate in together as a family. And so today as you eat and today as you drink, be reminded of the lavish generosity that God has poured out on you, that he's given to you through Christ, his body broken for you, his blood shed for you. Church, as you eat and drink this morning, may you be drawn to give praise and honor and glory to our God and Savior and declare with your lips and with your lives that Jesus is better. And for those of you that are not followers of Christ, I just want to ask you this morning not to come forward to take communion. And the reason for that is because we want you to take Jesus today. This is an act of worship for us, declaring that Jesus is our greatest treasure. And we want Jesus to be your greatest treasure. So just hang out in your seat if you don't yet know Christ. Pray and ask God to reveal himself to you. Ask God this morning to save you. If you're ready to trust in Christ today, do that today. Tell God that you you understand your need for Jesus and turn to him in repentance and faith today so that next week you can come forward and take the bread and take the cup and celebrate that Jesus has saved you and made you his own. And if you have questions about what it means to know and follow Christ, please come talk to me afterwards. I'll be standing right down here in the front. I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to pray with you. Any of our leaders would love to do. That's why this church is here. We want to see more and more people come to know Jesus. And for those of you that are followers of Christ, you can come to the front or head to the back. There'll be stations in both places. Just tear off a piece of bread and take a small cup to drink and hear what Christ has done for you. Be reminded of that this morning. Church, let's pray. Father, this is a difficult topic for many of us. It's a a challenging topic for many of us to look at. But Lord, I think oftentimes what we recognize that the reason it's challenging for us is because our hands are so tightly gripped around what we have. Lord, we, we just pray this morning that you would help us as your people to have open hands. Help us as your people to scheme for the global advancement of your kingdom and your glory. Help us to give. Help us to be generous. Help us to be like the Macedonian church where Paul says they're kind of they're kind of crazy with their giving. They so want to bless the work of God. Lord, would you help us to do that? Help us to understand and to give out of a response to the lavish grace you've poured out on us. Jesus, who paid it all for us. May this church, may Sojourn Church here in Fairfax, Virginia, be marked by faithful generosity. Lord, we submit our lives to you today. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.